right. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 to 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fall. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me, please? We've been told, and we have sometimes experienced the truthfulness of it, that there is or has been an exertion of an incomparably great power, mighty strength on us, such as was used to raise Christ from the dead. But Lord, we feel so fatigued, and those truths seem so far off by the time we get here on Sunday, that we're asking you to make what's true seem so to us again today. There are true things that we can't grasp unless you flick on a light switch and help us see again. There are true things that we can't grasp unless you put some kind of adhesive substance on our hands so that we can hang on tight. So we're asking you today, make us see. Make us able to grasp what's true again. You're the God who gives life to the dead. You're the God who treats us better than we deserve. You're the God who has fashioned us and conferred tremendous honor on us. Let us delight in it because we've believed it. Come, Holy Spirit, we invite you. Amen. You've heard the 
saying perhaps, I think Sammy Rhodes once said it, how do you know that someone does not have a TV? They will tell you. That's how you can tell they don't have a TV. How can you tell that someone thinks they're better than you? They drive a Toyota Prius. I have to, there's a contractual agreement with Corby that I make a Prius joke once every three months at least. It's been a while, I checked the calendar. We are expert, I know I am anyway, at boasting. Not boasting in the sense of, look how big my muscles are, even though. But boasting in the sense of setting out to make a name for ourselves by what we've been able to achieve or what we've been able to hang on to or what we happen to have by exerting ourselves to diminish others or by insulting others. I can remember as a small boy, an elementary school-aged kid in East Ridge where I grew up, where we were all, I don't know, lower middle class. I don't know what we were. We didn't know. We were all that. We were all the same thing. And yet we knew, beyond the shadow of any doubt in our eight-year-old selves, that it was infinitely better, and so was the person who did it, to wear a shirt that had a little green alligator on it, right here on the left side, not in some fake thing, like a real green one, and then later it was a polo, a little horse with a man in a hat, and a, we'd never seen a polo match or even known what it was. But we knew if you wore a shirt like that, you were clearly better than the people who shopped at, where'd you get them shoes? Kmart, Blue Light Special, that used to be a thing for any of you. Kmart, does, does Kmart exist anymore? I don't know. Or worse, I used to live next to a place called Zaire. Zamo, we called it. Zaire has now become a flea market, which is about the same difference. <laughs> and we knew, we knew. There was clearly a difference between who wore stuff from there and who didn't. No matter what our parents did, we all knew that these were clear ways you could create a pecking order and make a name for yourself. It's built into our heredity. It's baked into our DNA early on in creational history. We have folks convening together to make a name for themselves. It's what we know to do. It's what we think has to happen. I've got some way to make something of myself so that people think I'm something. I went to middle school. And I realized for the first time, you may have heard me talk. I said this at a dinner party the other night. I was thinking it through. I realized for the first time, oh, we're poor. Because I was around people who weren't. Oh, our house is terribly small and unimpressive because I was around and in houses that weren't. And I came to a conclusion from those facts. There's something I'm nothing. 
They're important, I'm not. Their parents are in the middle of deciding things for the city of Chattanooga. My parents aren't consulted about anything. They're not in the know. They're not part of the inner circles. My parents didn't go to college. Ah, but fortunately, I was an expert at boasting. It was baked into me, so I knew, because this is America, and America is a meritocracy. Which is to say that if you can do something better than someone else, then you can be better than someone else. You can make a name for yourself. It doesn't matter what family you were born into or how much privilege or wealth or riches you have. It doesn't matter how much talent you can, you can outwork. So maybe you, if you make it good enough grades. I figured out early, if I make good enough grades... And they posted the grades. This is a less gentle world. The, the whole school's grades were posted for everybody to see. God, mamas, teenage boys. It was great. But if you had good grades, then you could, that'd be a way to assert your supremacy. You could get all the favor of the coaches and the teachers by working harder than everybody athletically, by achieving athletically. Then you could be something. If you wore the right clothes, if you flipped your hair the right way, if you listened and to the right music and sneered at the wrong, top 40, ugh, who would listen to top 40 music? Listen to R.E.M., man, like pre-losing my religion, 1983 Murmur, when they're just a cool band out of Athens, Georgia, man, Michael Stipe and his... Your associations. Oh, these were, these were ways that you could, you could suddenly... You could make something of yourself. You could be something. And then you could be better than someone else. And you could feel like you belonged. And you could look down your noses at other people who weren't so cool. Or who hadn't achieved like you did. It was a leveler in a way. I was an expert. I am still. Recovering one at boasting. Went off to college, had to leave after a semester of my private Southern liberal arts college, come back home where all the washouts come. That's what I thought in my deranged mind. I'd seen it happen lots of times. You go off to school, you drink too much, you come back to the hometown university. Like clockwork, I saw it. And I was back at the hometown and university. But I didn't drink too much. I might have eaten too much, but that's a different story. My parents had divorced a number of times. We ran out of, we had money trouble. I was devastated. It's embarrassing to me that I was devastated. But I was devastated. My friends were at elegant colleges. Fancy colleges. And I was at home. And I was a boaster. And I was confused, and I thought I had to make a name for myself, and I didn't have any way to do it anymore. By factors outside of my control. The Apostle Paul has a remedy for this sickness of boasting, this virus of needing to make a name for ourselves, this epidemic of misplaced confidence where we think 
that if we can achieve enough, if we can be better than someone or we can look a certain way, then we will be something. He gives us a cure for that in Ephesians chapter 2. This passage that I'm hoping we're all in the middle of meditating on. We're doing seven days at a time. We start on Fridays when I notify you and then we go the rest of the week hopefully meditating on this passage, reading it several times, praying it, mulling it over, thinking about how it might connect with your life, talking about it amongst your maybe your small group, your friends, your family. Well, Paul gives us an antidote that's actually stunningly emancipating, liberating. He says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So that no one may boast. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do, or some of your translations may say, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in. Oh, wait a second, this changes everything, or it can. This is the Apostle Paul who had an exceptional resume, was born into the right family. He had a lineage that was impressive. I didn't have any of that. He had the schooling and the opportunities that were impressive. I didn't have that. He, he had this resume of attainment and, and righteousness and zeal. And he said, I found something to build my identity upon that made all of that stuff seem useless to me now. I don't even care about not having it anymore. I don't care about scrapping a resume that I used to have on monster.com, if that's a thing anymore. used to be. Is that still a thing? Nope. Okay. It's like 15 years ago. Rip Van Winkle up here. It should show you I'm not looking for a job. So that no one may boast, God has configured things. And the Apostle Paul realized, oh, wait, you mean the God who thought us up, to whom by nature we're enemies, to whom by nature we're rebels, to by nature we have a deep suspicion and distrust of, and so we think we have to make a name for ourselves, that we live with this perennial sense that I must value myself, I must confer value to myself. I must create value in the world to mean something, whatever the ways that is, by my associations, by my achievements, by my accumulation of wealth. And he says, this God before whom you were formerly an object of wrath, this God whom you formerly were committing constant adultery against, by following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, by Of course, it never feels like that to you. He says what it felt like was just following your own desires. And this God, when you were deader than a doornail, said, I pick you. Come awake, he said. And he let the nations, the 
The Gentiles, Paul says, those dogs, according to the Jews, the outsiders. He said, come on in, you bunch of mutts and strays, my little rescue hounds. Come on into my household. You're now the property, the beloved, the apple of the eye of the great king who made it all. And Paul says, but receiving this even is a gift, not from yourself, so that no one may boast. Paul says that in other places. May I never boast, except in Christ crucified, through whom the world world has been crucified to me, and I've been crucified to the world. He says that God has configured things in such a way that no one may boast about anything except in him. For him, boasting is about trust. It's about confidence. It's about what you hope in. And he's telling us that the solution to our boasting problem, which may not even occur to us until something's taken away from us, when your children disappoint you pretty severely and embarrass you, which uh, if your kids are young, they're probably embarrassing you now, and I guess they will later, maybe. I don't know. Or... Parents, if kids, if your parents embarrass you, a lot of times by not getting what we want, we realize what we were trusting and what we were boasting and when it's not there anymore. That's what changing colleges did for me, coming back home did for me. It made me realize, oh, look, I was putting a lot of confidence in these, these stupidities that I thought mattered a lot. I thought they made me something. And then I realized that God saves us by gift through acceptance of that gift called faith so that no one may boast that we're his workmanship, that we are actually something he thought of, something he's reforming, something he's remaking, some piece of work and art that he is crafting so that we might make a name for him and not for ourselves, that our worth is given us, not created by us. It's conferred upon us, not something that we generate ourselves. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrestled with this like lots of people have. He came up with this little helpful adage that you might be helped by today. He said, justification by works goes with judging, just as justification by grace goes with serving. I will say that una otra vez. Justification by works goes with judging, just as justification by grace goes with serving. This dynamic explains human history in a way. It's one angle of explanation. You know, we're living right now in a modern, contemporanized version of the scarlet letter we're just waiting for who the next hester Prynne is the virginia governor's got it right now until tomorrow but today our president can say it is shameful and unforgivable what he did our president said that and i thought that's a there's some expression about pots and kettles but i can't i can't think of what it is but then i think 
Not that the Virginia governor hasn't done lots of shameful things this week. But it's interesting to me, we're just waiting. It's a great joy of the, the blood that's constantly in the water. And the sharks are always waiting to attack a new person. And the more people we attack, the less no one's looking at us. The more sin, the more wrongness, the more violations of cultural orthodoxy we can point out, the more no one's pointing anything out at us. And we just hold our fingers that we don't get caught doing something impolite or somebody doesn't take a picture of us saying something wrong or out of context or, heaven forbid, get some weird text that you sent to your friend making a joke and then it's on CNN. But justification by works and judging go together. The idea is this. Because we're all expert boasters thinking we have to make a name for ourselves, what happens is if you think that you get where you need to be in the world by what you accomplish and you get where you need to be with God by what you're able to do or worse, by what you're able to not do, I would never do that. Then what you're going to do is you'll meet every person around you as a competitor potential threat to your existence so you will need to assert your supremacy some way if you think they're higher than you then you're probably going to feel pretty awful so you're going to need to level them in some way you're going to need to make justifications for oh yeah they have more money but that's because the trust funds i mean come on they didn't earn it you got to level them so you can feel better or you look down on people you think are less than you And everybody is a potential object of your scorn. So when you find yourself pointing and wagging your fingers and doing this, you ought to say, am I I being acted on by the God of grace who gives me most when I deserve it least, who has given me faith? This is not of myself so that no one may boast. When I find myself judging, it's because I'm thinking I have to build my own case. And everybody's in competition with me. So they have to be worse for me to be better. The whole evening news is predicated on this dynamic. Not knowingly. It's my little pet theory. You've heard me say it before, right? That's why we like the evening news when people used to watch it. Because we love hearing how bad everyone is. It makes us feel better. The more murder stories there are, the better we can feel about our, our less impolite violences. We can feel better about ourselves when we see how terrible the extreme cases are. But he also says that justification by grace goes with serving. When you start realizing that you're just, you wake up in the morning to a world that you did not summon into existence and with a heartbeat that you did not keep rolling, your eyelids popped open, you didn't, you didn't turn on any switch to make it happen. You go to a job and and you realize it isn't the cleverness that you created. You might have cleverness, but it was given to you. And the opportunities that come your way, they were given to you. And you realize all of your life is a gift. And when you start realizing that, then you can share what you have because everybody's not a competitor. You can realize if anybody seems worse than you, that the only reason you're better, uh, the only reason that there might be any distinction is because you've tasted some grace that's kept you from certain awfulnesses. It's a freeing 
It's a freeing kind of thing that sets us clear from having to walk out in the world and think, I've got to make a name for myself today. He says, instead of that, you're actually God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. Inasmuch as you accept that this is a welcoming from God has happened to us by the work of Christ, where he wants to show us the incomparable riches of his kindness in the coming ages. That's how we get into relationship with God, just because he picked us, just because he wanted us, just because he likes us. Then we got nothing to judge anybody about. We got nothing to, to harbor against. We got no reason to look at the poor and think, well, they get to work. And, and we get more sympathy. We get more empathy. We get more understanding. We get more recognition that grace is ruling everything for us. And here's another thing you can help you with not just your judging or serving, what's one you do, but it can help you with your sense of how much there is to do. I'm assuming, because I know most of you, that I'm not the only one in here that's a, that is an expert boaster who's been pretending his whole life in certain ways. But also, I'm a person, like you, I bet, who is constantly bumping up against this reality. There's not enough time to do all the things I'm supposed to do. I have this list, like you might. It's like I'm breeding Rabbits. And so it starts out like this, and by the end of the day, it's like this. And then the next day, it's like this. And no matter how hard I try and know how much I do, there's just more and more and more, and I can never get to it. So at least once, but mainly 12 times a day, I have this sinking, devastated feeling of all the people I'm letting down. How many people I'm letting down? Oh, it's overwhelming to me. It's like a tidal wave. It's like standing on the side of the road and a car runs through a big puddle and just... That's what it feels like. But it's only 7 or 12 or 14 times a day. Because it's really important to me not to let anybody down. I don't want to let anybody down. And there's way more people here than there are me. And I feel like I'm constantly letting all of them down. And when I'm teetering on the edge of my sense of like, well, I should just quit. I'm no good at this. Everybody thinks I'm no good at this. That's what they're going to think because I'm letting everybody down. I back up. And remember, I am God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for me to walk in. What if there's exactly enough time in a day to do what God intends for you to do? But what if there is definitely not enough time in a day for you to make all the people think that you're the most magnificent mom, pastor, lawyer, nurse, teacher, potter there ever existed? There is not enough time for that. There's enough time for you to do what God wants his workmanship to do each day. In our hearts we make plans, but the Lord directs our steps. Oh, what freedom it is. To recognize when we step into the world, we go out as people who are making a name for God and not for ourselves. The pressure's off us. And we get to participate in what he's up to. And my professor already told me a long time ago, there's a limit of one Messiah per universe and you are not it. And I never set out to be Messiah, but I realized 
when I'm overwhelmed by how many people I'm failing, or that I perceive I'm failing, I realize that I have come to imagine that I should be able to be a Messiah. That I should be able to be in all the places at all the times and remember all of the things and that I should have a sustained intensity that can last for 24 hours each day without sleep. But I'm God's workmanship, making a name for him, created to do works that he intends. Oh, what freedom to to rest in that, to know that what you did today was part of what he intended. And that what you didn't get done may just not have been part of his intention. He who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. Justification by works creates judging. Justification by grace creates serving. Grace of God eliminates any kind of boasting in anybody except for the God who has rescued us. And it can help us not to be overwhelmed by not getting everything done that we should. There is enough time to be God's workmanship. I close on the other day I was going through the line at Chick-fil-A. I think it was the first time. And I got to the window, and the lady said, Hi, are you Eric? And I should, have said, you know, I should say, you know, they ask you when you order, can we get a name for that order? So it was enough that they got that part right, because the only thing they ever get wrong at Chick-fil-A is sometimes they don't get my name right. Okay, thank you, Karen. No, no, it's Eric. It's not Karen. The voice might have tricked you. It's not Derek. It's not Darren. It's not Garrett. It's Eric. So anyways, I never say that. These are all just things I think. But I drove up to the line, and this lady says, Are you Eric? She was so exuberant. It's a job qualification there. And I said, why, yes, ma'am, I am. I am Eric. And she said, awesome. And I was like, thanks, mom. Awesome. Are you Eric? Yes. Awesome. I started to cry. Like, it's not awesome, I promise you. You've misgaged things. I'm way worse than you think. That lady was God's workmanship. He was recognizing God's workmanship and demonstrating what it means to be saved by grace, to breathe in grace, to exhale grace to live out with word and way grace. Because it means that everybody you meet is somebody that God has said. And if he hasn't said it yet, potentially could say it to them should they respond. You're someone I think is awesome. I made you up. I invented you. I thought you into being. And I've summoned you to myself. And most of us don't want anything to do with it. Most of our world says, get away from me. You're going to mess everything up. 
I got a name to make for myself. I can get the value I need from Instagram. Everybody knows if you get a lot of likes, you feel whole. If you have enough followers, you feel cured. So that, that'll do. That'll do me on the day of reckoning. That'll do me for existential emptiness. Instagram will be fine. But for those of you, that's not enough. What about the God who says, hey, are you Eric? Awesome. That's what grace says. Welcome in. And then when you believe that, and you start to act as if that's true, then you can exude the same kind of life that you're God's workmanship. No matter what your work happens to be, and you're showing the awesomeness of God's world to each other as you believe it for yourselves. I hope it will cure our boasting. My regular looks at the one who sees us and says, you're mine, not by anything you've done. And that's awesome. Let's pray. If you'll turn your bulletins, we're going to have a confession on page three. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you for a grace that saves us. I thank you for a grace that reassures us. I thank you that even when we can believe this for just a tiny slither of our day, it is, it's like a summer vacation. Will you help us to believe it again today? And thank you that we can confess our sins to you to get clean, to get unburdened, because you've already told us up front that all these sins have already been forgiven, that they're already off us, and we can, we can come clean. So help us to do that together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are, what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you take a moment to silently confess?